You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Celine Conroy. Tracy House is a social housing apartment complex located on Buckingham Street Upper in Dublin's north inner city. The original three-building complex was built in the 1960s amid a wave of mass social housing construction in the centre of the capital. The movement was brought about by the concern over squalid living conditions after three tenement buildings collapsed in separate parts of Dublin in the summer of 1963, resulting in a number of deaths. The government responded to public concern by pulling down the old buildings, replacing them with purpose-built social housing units. However, in their rush to get people out of the dangerous tenements, the focus was mainly on building housing at scale and often the sites lacked social amenities and services, such as shops and playgrounds. As the heroin epidemic ripped through pockets of Dublin's inner city in the 1980s, Complexes like Sean Tracy House became hotbeds for antisocial behaviour related to drug use. High levels of unemployment, along with poor housing and a lack of facilities for young people, resulted in spiralling drug use in the community. And although this plateaued towards the end of the 80s, the trend saw a resurgence in the mid-1990s. As the turn of the century rolled around, a regeneration of Dublin's inner city began. Dublin City Council had started to demolish troublesome apartment complexes to make way for new accommodation units with improved social conditions and adequate leisure facilities. Sean Tracy House was earmarked for this urban renewal scheme, but the plan was hampered by delays, and despite the aim to demolish the building in 2003, it was still standing in 2005, although only a handful of people still occupied the building. Among these residents were Celine Conroy, her partner Paul Hickey, and their three children. Celine had been brought up in Dublin's north inner city. Family members described her as a quiet and sweet child who never asked for much. However, Celine's childhood was marked by the breakup of her parents' marriage and the subsequent long absences of her father. By her mid-teens, Celine had fallen in with a bad crowd. She met her childhood sweetheart, Paul Hickey, and the pair started to experiment with drugs. They dabbled in heroin together, with Celine quickly becoming addicted. Eventually, she was confronted by her family, and at the age of 18, Celine was sent to stay with her aunt Patricia in the UK. However, against the wishes of her family, she returned to Dublin a year later and rekindled her relationship with Paul Hickey. Hickey, who was originally from Darndale on the north side of the city, was born into the seedy underbelly of Dublin's drug trade. His father, Paul Gash Ainscoff, was one of the city's biggest heroin dealers in the 80s and early 90s as the drugs tore through the inner city, decimating communities. Following somewhat in his father's footsteps, Hickey was known to Gardy as a violent, petty criminal and habitual drug user who had a number of convictions for possession of heroin, road traffic offences and public order violations. Despite his lack of convictions for more serious crimes, 
Hickey had come to the attention of Gardee in his mid-teens, and it was believed that he was a member of a gang of professional thieves from the North Inner City. His criminal associates were among the first armed robbers to target cash deliveries to ATMs, and although a number of them were eventually caught, Hickey managed to avoid capture. With Paul back in Celine's life, her old problems resurfaced and she quickly fell back into heroin addiction. She became pregnant soon after with her son and, wanting a better life for her little boy, Celine enrolled in drug counselling therapy and started a methadone treatment programme at the city clinic on Amiens Street. This programme was provided as part of the methadone treatment protocol, which was introduced in Dublin in 1998 in a bid to tackle the rising levels of addiction in socially deprived areas of the city. The scheme was controversial as it revolved around providing the heroin substitute instead of a more traditional abstinence model of addiction treatment. It ultimately had a very poor track record in decreasing dependency. However, it proved to be effective in reducing disease transmission as well as improving the health and social functioning of opioid users. When her son was three years old, Celine gave birth to a little girl. A third child, another girl, was born in 2004. According to Jim Cusack, writing for the Sunday Independent, Celine had never re-succumbed to heroin and her children were always well looked after, despite the awful living conditions they had to endure in Sean Tracy House. By 2005, only six or seven of the units in the complex were still occupied, with the rest boarded up and ransacked by youths and addicts. The apartments that were still in use were said to be rat-infested and riddled with damp, and the stairwells were filthy and strewn with rubbish. Conditions were so bad that the building had been dubbed Little Beirut by some locals. Under the regeneration scheme, Dublin City Council were obliged to provide alternative accommodation for residents who were displaced by regeneration works, but with the shortage of housing in the inner city, many families found themselves relocated to the outer suburbs. Like the other residents who were hanging on in Sean Tracy House, Celine didn't want to be moved to an area where she had no friends or family. Her mother Sandra occupied one of the other units in the condemned building, and she saw her daughter and grandkids on a daily basis. Celine's vulnerability as a recovering addict made her heavily reliant on her support network, and if she was moved to the outer suburbs of the city, she feared that this would be lost. So she held on, refusing to leave, in the hope that delaying the demolition would force the council to offer suitable housing nearby. In contrast to Celine's dogged determination to beat her addiction, her partner Paul Hickey was a persistent heroin user who showed no signs of wanting to kick his habit. Celine's family didn't particularly like Hickey, but she seemed happy with him. However, behind closed doors, Paul Hickey was physically and emotionally abusive to Celine and would swear the kids to secrecy on occasions that they witnessed him beating their mother. Despite the daily challenges that she faced, Celine was a devoted mother to her children and was looking forward to a brighter future. But when the summer of 2005 rolled around and there was still no permanent housing solution in sight, Celine and Paul decided to take the kids on a two-month sun holiday to escape the dampness of their condemned flat in Sean Tracy House. It was something that the family had done each summer for the past three years, taking advantage of a Spanish villa owned by Hickey's cousin, Alan O'Neill. The chalet was located in the Marina Oasis complex in San Fulgencio, just inland from Torrevea. 
It was an estate used mainly by Irish, British and German holidaymakers. The resort was situated on the Costa Blanca near Alicante, and in the early 2000s the area had seen a huge surge in popularity among notorious Irish criminals. Hickey's reasons for wanting to escape to Spain differed somewhat from Celine's. Whereas she wanted to give her children a break from the awful living conditions back home, Hickey was more excited about the easy access to diazepam, which he could enjoy in Spain, where the drug was readily available as a heroin substitute for registered addicts. This meant that he could spend his holidays getting high on cheap, legal gear. Celine, on the other hand, could not. In the lead-up to the trip abroad, she had to make special arrangements with her methadone clinic to ensure that she had enough of the substitute to last for the duration of the holiday. The first few weeks abroad went as planned, with the family enjoying the pool and the sunny weather. But as the end of August loomed, Celine became anxious to get back to Dublin. The school year was due to start for the kids, and her supply of methadone was quickly running out. In spite of this, Hickey refused to let her go home, instead insisting that they stay on for another few weeks. As Celine began to suffer in the absence of her methadone, Hickey went to the other extreme. His use of diazepam, cocaine, and alcohol intensified, making his behaviour increasingly erratic and volatile. Neighbours at the Marina Oasis complex reported that towards the end of August, the villa where Hickey and Conroy were staying played host to a number of booze-fuelled parties, and the couple were frequently heard arguing loudly. The antics became so rowdy that a few of the nearby residents ended up confronting Hickey about the noise. On August 20th, 2005, the family were joined at the villa by Hickey's aunt, Norma Armitage, who arrived for a week-long holiday with her teenage son. As the days wore on, Hickey's behaviour deteriorated further. On Wednesday, August the 27th, he began playing loud music yet again, resulting in another argument with neighbours. His aunt said that the turn in Hickey's personality was sudden and very noticeable. She said, quote, Whatever he took then, it completely changed him. I love Paul to bits. I just can't explain it. He's a doting father. I don't know how things could change so quickly. Two days later, Hickey brought his younger cousin to a medical practice a number of miles from the Marina Oasis complex for the treatment of a minor ailment. While the teenager was inside seeing the doctor, Hickey drove off, leaving the boy stranded with no mobile phone to contact his mother. Norma Armitage eventually had to get one of her neighbours at the Marina Oasis complex to help her and Hickey look for her son. During this search, Hickey insisted that his three children go with them, but instead of helping to look for Aaron, he kept slumping in his seat and falling in and out of sleep. The following day, Hickey's erratic behaviour intensified and he became extremely aggressive when Celine said she did not want to accompany him on a night out to a karaoke bar with his aunt and cousin. She had been feeling increasingly sick without her supply of methadone, but despite this, Hickey insisted that she get dressed up to go out. Nora was so concerned by her nephew's behaviour that she was sure he had taken some sort of mind-altering drug. Quote, he was a completely changed man. He was off his head. According to Mrs Armitage, once Celine Conroy was dressed, Hickey forced her to parade up and down in front of the villa for him. Hickey's aunt said it was clear that Celine was very uncomfortable with that and continued, quote, He then changed his mind and told her to get back in the villa. It was very strange. We always knew him as a loving father. 
We just can't explain how he changed so much in those few days. Nora and her son ended up going to the karaoke bar on their own, and when they returned to the villa at half past one, they found the building in darkness and the door locked. They knocked repeatedly, but nobody answered, and they were forced to sleep outside on the porch on cushions from the sun chairs. The following morning, Nora phoned her husband to say she was no longer comfortable staying at the villa due to Hickey's behaviour. The property was still locked up, meaning the Armitages couldn't access any of their belongings. So, just after midday, Nora went to the next-door neighbours, who she knew held a set of spare keys. She returned to Hickey's villa with the key, and on opening the front door, she made the horrific discovery of Celine's body, lying in a pool of blood on the floor. The young mother was naked except for a pair of shorts, and her head was covered by a towel. Nora recalled, quote, I just screamed. Didn't know what to do. There was blood everywhere. It was horrific. Terrified that the three children may also have been killed, Hickey's aunt couldn't bring herself to enter the villa. She returned next door and one of the neighbours called the local emergency number, telling the operator that a man had, quote, apparently killed his wife. Local police and members of the paramilitary civil guard rushed to the Marina Oasis complex and when they arrived at the property, they found Paul Hickey in a dazed and highly aggressive state. Hickey rampaged around the house shouting and police held back for reinforcements for almost an hour until neighbours finally managed to explain to them that there were kids inside the building. Two officers entered the villa immediately and found all three children unharmed. A standoff ensued with the police trying to separate Hickey from the kids as he continued to struggle against the officers. Eventually, a doctor was called to sedate him and police successfully took him into custody. After being removed from the villa, Hickey was taken to a local medical centre where doctors took samples to be tested for drugs. He was then brought to the local police station for questioning. One of the officers who led the Conroy children away from the villa described it as a horrendous scene. The children were later handed over to Norma Armitage, who took them to stay in a neighbouring villa. An examination of Celine's body revealed that she had suffered massive head injuries, and it was initially believed that she had been bludgeoned to death. However, no weapon was found in the vicinity, and it was eventually determined that she was kicked and beaten with fists, with such force that her face was completely destroyed. Hickey appeared in court in Alicante on Tuesday the 30th of August on suspicion of killing Celine Conroy. He was refused bail. His father, Paul Gash Ainscoff, was present for the hearing and, as he passed waiting reporters, he pulled a t-shirt over his head and gave a two-fingered salute to photographers. Due to the slow speed of the Spanish legal system, the initial charging process was expected to take a number of months and it was believed that Hickey could face as long as two years in custody before standing trial for killing Celine. In the meantime, he was sent to Alicante's Fontcalant prison to wait on remand. According to prison director José López, Hickey was deemed to present a risk of self-harm after undergoing the standard psychiatric evaluation on admission to the prison, so he was placed on suicide watch. 
It was also revealed that he would be kept away from other convicts for his own safety, as the case had caused considerable social alarm in Spain. At the time of Celine's death, her 43-year-old mother, Sandra, was in hospital, having received a diagnosis of aggressive cancer on the same day that she learned that Celine had died. Sandra was allowed to leave the hospital for a few hours on the Sunday evening to be with family, but her poor health meant that she couldn't travel to Spain. Instead, Celine's father, David Conroy, made the heartbreaking trip with a number of relatives to organise the return of his grandchildren and the repatriation of his daughter's body to Dublin. Ironically, Paul Hickey's family travelled out on the same flight, though little was spoken between the two groups. Of his trip, Mr. Conroy said, quote, We knew in our hearts that Celine was dead. We knew he had beaten her, but, I don't know, we thought it might have been an accident that she died. By the time Sandra Conroy was fully released from the hospital on Monday, September 1st, most of her close family had travelled to Spain, and she was forced to stay at an aunt's house to avoid the crowds of reporters that were camped out on her doorstep at Sean Tracy House. The pathologist who conducted the post-mortem on Celine Conroy's body concluded that Hickey began his attack on Celine at about 9pm, hitting her until she fell down, before continuing to beat her as she lay helpless on the ground. The mother of his children then lay dying for seven hours. All but two of her upper teeth were kicked out and her blonde hair had turned white with shock by the time her body was discovered. Hickey had inflicted 35 injuries on Celine as she lay on the ground, with 14 of the wounds on her face and neck. David Conroy and his brother-in-law, David Fitzsimons, went to identify Celine's body, with the latter telling Andrew Phelan of the Evening Herald how Celine was so unrecognisable that they thought they had been shown the wrong body. Quote, We asked and they brought us back and showed us the name tag. Then we saw the ring that she always wore. Davy grabbed hold of me and held on so hard, I thought I'd cracked a rib. After identifying the body, they then had to return to the blood-spattered villa at Marina Oasis to collect the belongings of Celine and the kids. As Celine's family members waited for her body to be released, her father David cared for his traumatised grandkids. The children began to open up about their ordeal and David was horrified to learn that they had witnessed the entire brutal killing of their mother. He revealed that Celine's eldest daughter, just five, could describe events in great detail. The little girl and her older brother had screamed at Hickey, begging him to stop as he viciously beat Celine to death, while their baby sister sat strapped into her buggy, crying. Celine's aunt, Marie Fitzsimons, who had travelled to Spain with David Conroy, told how the five-year-old had relayed what happened. She'd said, quote, Me ma and da were in the paper because they were fighting. Daddy was kicking mammy. Mammy's guts were coming out of her mouth. The eldest child, who was then eight, said, quote, He's in prison because he was fighting with my ma. I told him to stop hitting my ma. After his brutal attack on Celine, Hickey made the kids walk past her body and took them to sleep with him while she lay dying at the bottom of the stairs. David Conroy had long since suspected that his daughter was being beaten by Hickey, but she would never speak about it. He said, quote, We didn't like the guy. Everybody in the family hated him. The reason no one liked him was because we knew what he was into. He was always a prick. He beat her to death, left her there and went to bed. 
and I don't have to tell you what I'd do if I met him now. David believed that the fight which led to Celine's death started when Hickey refused to allow his partner to travel back to Dublin to stock up on methadone. There was also a belief that Celine had been unhappy with the amount of drink and drugs that Hickey had been consuming over the course of the holiday, and that the attack was fueled by a cocktail of drugs that Hickey had been taking during the week. This idea was backed up by Norma Armitage's accounts of the rapid decline in Hickey's behaviour. It soon emerged that, due to the strict legal procedures surrounding murder investigations in Spain, Celine's body could be held for an extended period before being sent back to Ireland. Her family were deeply upset by this delay, and six days after Celine had been killed, they travelled back to Dublin without her remains, in the hopes that the familiarity of home would bring comfort to her three children. Following their return, Sandra Conroy had the heartbreaking job of unpacking the family's suitcases. In them, she found three little angel trinkets bought by Celine in a Spanish gift shop, one for each of her kids. The weeks ticked by with no sign of Celine's body being returned and on September 15th, her mother Sandra gave an interview in the Irish Examiner in a bid to highlight how desperate the family were to bring her home. Sandra blamed herself for Celine's death, believing that her daughter would have returned home from Spain immediately if her mother had told her about the cancer diagnosis. Sandra lamented, quote, If I told her I was sick with cancer, she might be alive now, but I did not tell her because I knew she was coming home the next week. Now I don't know when she is coming home so that I can bury her and her children can put flowers on her grave. Authorities had, by that point, informed Celine's family that it could be up to two years before her body would be repatriated and that the magistrate had the power to order that she be buried in Spain until the case against Hickey was concluded. Sandra said that this put the family into limbo because they couldn't begin the grieving process without having Celine back home. She also revealed that she had refused to start treatment for her cancer until her daughter's body was back in the country because she knew that there was a chance that she would end up hospitalised and could potentially miss the funeral. She told reporter Evelyn Ring how much she missed her daughter, with whom she was very close. Quote, We lived in the same block of flats and I would see her every day. She came in for her lunch after collecting the children from school and I would often make her a pot of stew to take back with her for dinner. Sandra said that despite being close with Celine, she had no idea how badly Hickey had treated her daughter. Quote, if her life with him was horrible, she hid it very well. She never had a black eye or a visible bruising that would make me think she was having a hard time. That's what I can't understand. In another bid to highlight their plight to bring Celine home, Sandra and David turned to national radio, appearing on Marion Finucane's RTE radio show. As a result of the interview, a Galway solicitor named Tom McGinty volunteered to help the family with the release of Celine's remains. The exposure also brought a visit to the Conroys from Taoiseach Bertie Ahern, who said that he had ordered the Irish ambassador in Spain to personally intervene and speed up the repatriation of Celine's body. Celine's family had also asked the Labour Party justice spokesman Joe Costello to speak with Spanish authorities about releasing Celine's body, and the Department of Foreign Affairs was said to be putting pressure on authorities to release the body as soon as possible. On the 25th of September, hundreds of people turned out for a candlelit vigil at Sean Tracy House to commemorate Celine. 
It was the day of her son's ninth birthday, and all three of Celine's children were present at the memorial. Businesses and locals in the north inner city came together and raised 5,000 euros to help with Celine's repatriation costs. However, there was still no sign of her body coming home, despite the Taoiseach's promise to try and secure the release of Celine's remains. As they continued the fight to bring Celine home, her parents, David and Sandra, were also undertaking a different battle. Celine's ultimate wish before her untimely death was that her children would have a decent and stable home near their grandparents and cousins. Since returning to Dublin, the kids had been looked after by Celine's brother, Niall, and his family, with all of them living in the same flat in Sean Tracy House that Celine had so desperately wanted to escape from. It was hoped that they could be rehoused together in an effort to fulfil Celine's wishes. On October 15th, seven weeks after Celine was beaten to death, her family gathered at Dublin Airport to bring her body home. Her father David spoke of their relief at finally having her back. He told the media, quote, We all wanted to be there at the airport this morning. It's just a gesture, but it's all we could do. We just wanted to show my daughter some respect. Celine's uncle Thomas had travelled to Spain to accompany her remains home, as the family couldn't bear to think of her making that last journey alone. Celine was laid to rest amid harrowing scenes of grief at Our Lady of Lourdes Church on Wednesday the 19th of October. Her eldest daughter brought a card to the altar which read, I love you, Mammy. I miss you. I really miss you. I hope heaven is nice and you're having a good time. Celine's aunt Patricia made an emotional speech on behalf of the family, remembering how special Celine was as a child and how she would spend her summers with Patricia in Devon. She also recalled an ironic promise that Paul Hickey had made to her years before. Through tears, Patricia said, quote, She loved Paul to bits since she was 14. He promised me he'd take care of her but we know now he didn't. She finished her tribute to her niece by saying, quote, God bless you, Celine. You were a pleasure to know, and you've made my life a pleasure. Celine's children were comforted by family throughout the Mass, with the youngest baby playing and smiling, too young to be aware of the enormous loss of her mother. Close to the church, the gates of Celine's home at Sean Tracy House were fronted by an altar of flowers, and outside the apartment complex, a mass of floral arrangements and cards had been left in the few weeks since her death. The sound of bagpipes filled the air as the mourners left the church, and dozens of tributes accompanied Celine's coffin as it was brought to Glasnevin Cemetery. A month later, the Conroy family were awarded custody of Celine's children, which David Conroy said they were delighted with. Paul Hickey's family had made no effort to get in touch with them since Celine's death, and David said that the Conroy family wouldn't be happy with them seeing the kids in any case. In December, Celine's final wish came true when her brother Niall was allocated a permanent house in Summerhill, in which he could raise his nephew and nieces, along with his partner and their own daughter. Despite undergoing counselling to help them deal with what they had witnessed, Celine's eldest children still hadn't come to terms with the horror of what they'd endured. The new house was seen as an opportunity for a fresh start.
In February of 2006, it emerged that the villa at Marina Oasis, where Celine was brutally killed, was to be sold for over 300,000 euros to help pay for Paul Hickey's defence. The Conroy family feared that Hickey would use the money to hire a top defence team to argue that he was insane when he beat Celine to death. Celine's mother Sandra commented, quote, It's a bit rich, them selling the house where my daughter was murdered so that they can get him the best solicitor. Why can't he admit he killed my daughter? In May of 2006, Spanish authorities said that the trial was expected to start in October. Celine's family were happy to see things moving along. However, this in itself brought a new challenge for the Conroys. In order to ensure that Celine was represented properly in court, the family would need to pay a solicitor almost €10,000. Although the Department of Foreign Affairs were happy to provide a list of suitable legal professionals, the government didn't provide any funding for such causes. Sandra Conroy feared that without a Spanish solicitor, any legal defences put up by Paul Hickey would not be challenged to the full extent. Once again, the community in the North Inner City came together for a massive fundraising drive, eventually raising in excess of €11,000 for the cause. October 2006 came and went without any sign of an official trial date, and a year later, in October of 2007, Sandra Conroy spoke of her fear that she wouldn't live to see Hickey brought to justice. Amid a relapse of cancer, Sandra said, quote, It's just gone on too long, and I keep thinking that I'm not going to be there for the trial. I have to keep fighting, as I want to see justice for Celine, but I'm not well at all. It was yet another year before there was any real progress in the case, and then in October of 2008, a month before the trial was due to start, details of the prosecution case were leaked to local media outlets in Spain. It was reported that prosecutors were pushing for a 20-year sentence and that if Hickey was found guilty, he would be barred from seeing his kids for 10 years. He would also be ordered to pay compensation to Celine's family. A written account of the allegations against Hickey was laid out, with prosecutors claiming that Hickey beat Celine to the ground and then continued to beat her as she lay helpless. He then ordered his children to walk past their dying mother as she lay on the floor, bringing them to his bedroom before showering himself and going to bed. All while Celine lay dying for seven hours. Then, just a week before the trial was due to start, it emerged that Spanish prosecutors wanted the two children to give evidence against their father in court. The children hadn't seen Hickey since he was arrested, and Celine's mother Sandra feared that facing him in court could cause further trauma to the youngsters. She wanted lawyers to instead use the statements given to police by the children three years previously in the aftermath of Celine's murder. Sandra was relieved when authorities contacted them in an 11th hour development to say that the children wouldn't be testifying. The trial opened on the 12th of November with an immediate dramatic twist, truncating the procedure into one that would last just a single day. Hickey had agreed to a plea deal with the prosecutors. Up to 20 members of Celine's family had travelled to Alicante for the court proceedings, though none of them were permitted inside the packed courtroom in Elche as the hearing got underway. Paul Hickey arrived in the back of a Guardia civil van, and, as he was led past the throng of photographers, he stuck his tongue out. 
Dressed in a white and blue tracksuit, he sat at the front of the courtroom as the indictment was read out. His guilty plea was made as part of a deal with the prosecutors in which he would serve a sentence of 15 years. He would also be ordered to pay €60,000 to each of his children and €40,000 to Celine's parents. His claim was that he killed Celine, but that his responsibility was diminished due to the amount of drugs he had taken. The Conroy family were advised by the prosecution team that they should agree to the deal, which would see Hickey convicted of homicide without forethought or foreplanning. As part of the plea bargain, Hickey denied an additional charge of having caused gratuitous suffering to Conroy. His defence team insisted in court that he did not intend to cause unnecessary or gratuitous suffering to the victim. Just after 2pm local time, the two state prosecutors, the Conroy family solicitor and the defence solicitor, agreed on the 15-year sentence, with credit for time served. Sandra Conroy was allowed back into the courtroom for the final portion of the trial. However, she was forced to sit at the back, flanked by court officials, and she had to promise that she would not react in any way as details of the attack were read out, which she later said she felt was very unfair. Despite yawning repeatedly as evidence was presented in court about how he had viciously attacked Celine, Paul Hickey then stood up and apologised for his actions, saying, quote, I'm sorry for what happened, everything that happened. As the jury began their deliberations on whether or not they accepted Hickey's plea deal, he was escorted from the court by police. As he passed members of Celine's family, they hurled insults at him and Hickey sneered back at them and shouted, saying, quote, So what? At this provocation, the Conroys surged forward, with one of them calling him a scumbag. To this, Hickey replied, quote, You shut your mouth, you. Following his conviction, Celine's family cheered as Hickey was led past them, and he responded by giving them the middle finger with both hands. Later that day, state prosecutor Pablo Romero came out and said that despite Hickey blaming the killing on a cocktail of drugs he had taken, the Darndale native actually had no signs of drugs in his system when tested, apart from the sedative administered to him by the arresting police. Mr. Romero said, quote, he had his full facilities at the time of the assault. Hickey had already spent three years in custody, which would be taken off his 15-year sentence, meaning that, with remission, he could possibly be released in as little as seven years. Speaking after the conviction, Sandra Conroy said, quote, Celine loved her children, loved Hickey. He was her only boyfriend ever. He was her only love. And that was the way he treated her in the end. The children, Sandra said, had started to open up about earlier beatings Celine had been subjected to by Hickey. They had been warned by their father to keep the abuse a secret. Sandra claimed that prior to the trial, she was unaware of the true horror of Hickey's attack on Celine, and if she had known, then she would never have accepted the plea deal. Quote, that was the first time I heard everything. If I had known all the injuries she had, everything he did to her, I would have said no to 15 years. Hickey's lack of remorse and total disregard for the court proceedings stunned Sandra. She commented, quote, When I was sitting in the court, he turned around and looked at me twice. He nodded his head and smiled at me and shrugged his shoulders. A few days after his conviction, Hickey gave a media interview in which he said he was very sorry for his actions and claimed that he still loved Celine. 
He said that he wanted his children to know that he was sorry. Regarding the attack itself, Hickey continued, quote, All I can remember is the kid shouting, Stop it, Daddy, please stop it. I can remember hitting her a punch, then both of us ending up on the floor, and the kids screaming at me to stop. But Celine never said a word. I must have knocked her out with the first punch. When asked about why he had shouted and made crude gestures at the Conroy family outside the court, Hickey claimed he was only playing up to the cameras. On the fourth anniversary of Celine's death, Sandra Conroy complained about how the family had been treated by the Spanish authorities. They had, she said, treated her family like criminals and kept them in the dark on the whereabouts of Paul Hickey. Following his conviction, Hickey had been returned to Fontcalant, one of the country's toughest prisons. However, it was later reported that he had been transferred to Vilena, which is a more modern prison with an easier regime. Prisoners at Vilena can take advantage of perks such as keeping pet dogs and swimming in the pool. However, Sandra said that her own inquiries cast doubt over whether or not he really was transferred, and now she lacked trust and faith in the Spanish authorities. She said she just wanted to know exactly where he was. Speaking of the family's shock at learning that Hickey would be due for release in August of 2020, Sandra explained, quote, He will get out, either on her birthday or the anniversary of her death or near enough. Could they make it any harder on us? It feels like we've been treated like the ones who committed a crime and not him. She also claimed that the family hadn't heard anything about the compensation that Hickey had been ordered to pay, and Sandra said she didn't expect to see any of it. An article published in the Sunday World detailed how Hickey's father, Paul Ainscoff, was alleged to have continued to deal heroin around the inner city as his son sat out his sentence in Spain. According to the piece, Ainscoff would walk the same route every day as far as O'Connell Street and back down through Abbey Street, selling drugs to addicts along the way. This, they said, continued right up to his death in 2019. In December of 2020, Paul Hickey returned to Dublin following his release from prison in Spain. His appearance had changed drastically in the 15 years he'd spent in jail, and he was now bloated and balding with matted hair in his beard. He was living homeless and was accommodated in a B&B. A few days after his return to the capital, Hickey was spotted in the Summer Hill area of the North Inner City, resulting in him being attacked by a group of youths and beaten with a metal bar. The attack was reported to Gardi by a relative of the Hickeys, and he was moved out to accommodation in a nearby suburb. However, Gardi warned him that he was not safe. For Sandra and her family, life will never return to normal. She said, quote, He killed part of me when he killed Celine. She was my shadow, and now I've lost my shadow. Nor can Sandra ever bring herself to forgive Paul Hickey for what he did. Quote, there's a monster living inside him. He'll never change. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks to KR, CS677, Joan Taylor, and John Farrelly. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spearin. 
Additional writing and production was by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.